0: Right. right, let's uh, turn in our Bibles to Matthew, Matthew, the 18th chapter. We're going to begin our study in the book of Matthew, 18, uh, continuing our study in this wonderful gospel, and our message this morning is Resolving Issues in the Local Church, Part 1. Uh, I know whenever you see part one, you say, there must be a part two. Uh, so that's certainly true. We're going to take this entire chapter here but, uh, and kind of divide it at least two parts. Maybe the Lord uh, will have us divide it into three. I'm not sure, but uh, we'll, uh, uh, we'll uh, at least uh, this particular title this morning... uh, Resolving Issues in the Local Church, Part 1. And uh, in Matthew 18, we see Jesus' disciples come to him with a question, which he not only answered, but then used to discuss other necessary truths. And we would probably call this a teachable moment. Uh, You know, sometimes uh, your children or someone might ask you a question, and you say, well... This is just a good time to teach them something here. That's a good question. And so Jesus is going to use this as a teachable moment. And this morning we'll take a little different approach to this chapter than we have other chapters thus far. Uh, The key verses in this chapter are verses 15 through 20. The key verses are verses 15 through 20, and we're going to read them, but we're not really going to talk about them much this morning. But we'll give you the... Uh, key part of this, and then we'll look at the, uh, some other things in this particular chapter. So let's look at verses 15 through 20 first of all, and then we'll get into the message. It says there, Moreover, if thy brother should trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Each of the subjects that Jesus is going to address in this passage contain some content to a person's spiritual well-being. And we could say that each one of the subjects would stand alone as a topic, and yet all of this chapter seems to revolve around and provide the spiritual foundation that's needed for a section right here in the middle of the chapter, these verses that we just read, verses 15 through 20. Jesus had announced to the disciples in chapter 16 that he would build or edify his church, and now he teaches to his first assembly the very important doctrine and practice that would determine the very spiritual nature and character of that institution. And so we find these verses play a very vital role or part in understanding what the Lord's churches must do uh, and what they must be. Now, let me remind you this morning, as we've talked about this in chapter 16, that. The meaning of the word church. We talked about it in chapter 16, that church does not refer to a universal, mystical, invisible something or other, but that the word is ecclesia. It appears in the New Testament 118 times and always means an assembly. This is an assembly. We've assembled ourselves together this morning. And, uh, Sometimes the word in the New Testament has a reference to a secular gathering. In Acts chapter 19, uh, there are several verses there that make that reference. There's also one reference to a congregation of believers in heaven we find in Hebrews chapter 12. But most often, the, the word refers to people who have believed on Christ, have been baptized in water, and have been organized under the leadership of a pastor to carry out the Great Commission in obedience to Jesus Christ. And because ecclesia means assembly, it cannot refer to an uncongregated mass of so-called true believers around the world, and it's never used that way in the New Testament. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to discussing this particular passage in detail. But our text starts with a simple situation, as someone sinning against his Christian brother. And then it moves to a congregation, deciding that one of its members be treated not only as a heathen, an unregenerate soul who's headed for hell, but also a publican, perhaps the most despised individual in the Jewish society. And the Lord then declares in verse 18 that the decision made by the earthly congregation will be authorized, sanctioned, and upheld by God Himself in heaven. And as one of only two mentions of this word church in the Gospels, this passage should hold a place of immense importance in shaping the character and the operation of New Testament churches. Now, Bible-believing Baptists have considered verses 15 to 17 to be one of the key passages on separation, the doctrine of practical sanctification and holiness that protects the purity of God's people and the Christian faith. And as as important as the instruction of this passage is, only a small minority of American churches actually practice what it teaches. Many Christians and churches who regard themselves as Bible-believing strongly object when a a church puts this truth into practice. They think, well, that's kind of an unloving thing to do, to declare one of your members to be a heathen or a publican. They may even declare that no church has that kind of authority, especially a small church. Others will protest that making that judgment is unchristian. But the purpose of our study here in this 18th chapter of Matthew is to consider exactly what the Son of God taught us in verses 15 through 20. And yet to understand properly that instruction, we must first consider the teaching around it. Uh, We'll see that not only is it Christian for a church to exercise discipline and practice this separation, but also it so expresses the character of a loving God and of genuine spirituality. The failure to keep this teaching undermines the heart of the Christian faith. Now, in our study, we're going to see the tremendous value of every soul as well as the damning and corrupting power of sin. We will see that the Lord Jesus gives New Testament church the process and authority for resolving issues between its members. That authority includes rendering a judgment against an unrepentant church member, removing them from church membership, and treating them as an unbeliever. Now that, again, may sound harsh and may sound unloving, And I have hastened to say that the ultimate goal of church discipline would always be to see that the offending person be restored to faith and usefulness in the body of believers. Just as we would always lovingly but firmly discipline our children, so must a church carefully and lovingly discipline a sinning member. So in order to understand the heart of this chapter, Let's look at the demands for the action by the head of the church. Who is the head of the church? Well, it's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He's the one that's giving us this teaching. In verse 14, the first 14 verses, I should say, the first 14 verses, the Lord sets forth some important truths that demonstrate why and how Christians and churches must practice what he taught them in verses 15 through 20. And then in verses 21 through 35 also directly relate to verses 15 through 20, because in them the Lord answered the question that Peter asked as a result of hearing what Jesus had taught. and So the entire content of Matthew 18 shows that a love for God's people demands that churches obey God's instruction here in verses 15 through 20. So, like I said, we're not going to look at verse 15 and 20 this morning, but we're going to look at the verses around them. All right, so first of all, notice with me the Savior's valuation of an individual. The Savior's valuation of the individual soul. Let's go back to verse 1. Look at verses 1 through 5. Notice there at the same time came the disciples unto Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoso shall receive one such little child in my name, receiveth me. Now here you have the concept of who was greatest. This was the issue that was important to the Jesus disciples. And sometimes that's the overwhelming issue that's important to us. Who is the greatest? Or who has the greatest team? You know, we're always concerned about those that are the greatest. Well, like most believing Jews at that time, they expected they were looking for a messianic kingdom. They were highly interested in who's going to have the top governmental positions under the Messiah. And though they asked the question here in verse 1, because of their failure to understand the present work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spiritual kingdom, it was still a good question and one that needed to be answered from the Lord's viewpoint. And so in verses 2 through 5, Jesus uses a little child as an illustration of the truth that he wanted to communicate. And he told them that even to enter the kingdom of God, a soul must be converted and become as little children, meaning that we must turn from our own way and our own sin, that is, repent, and have our whole nature and outlook changed so that we can humbly trust and obey the Lord. A person must humble himself, And it is this choice of repentance and faith in the Savior that prepares them for greatness in the eyes of God. Now the Lord, I think, makes two very important points about greatness here that lays the foundation for the rest of the chapter. First of all, a person's worth comes from being redeemed. A person's worth comes from being redeemed. It's not what you have or what you have accomplished that makes you great you know sometimes people say well if I had a lot of land and a big house and a lot of things I would be great and you probably would be a great person in your community I guess if you use that land or use that wealth to to make an influence have an impact on the community but that's a human perspective that's not God's perspective What you have or what you accomplish in this life does not make you great. A person's worth comes from being redeemed. The fact that you've been redeemed and washed from your sins through the mercy and the grace of God. That's the thing that's going to make you great. And then secondly, being converted makes a soul great. No matter how small or poor or insignificant you may be in the world's eyes, you are great and important to God if you've been converted, as that's the word he uses here. We're saved, regenerated, saved, and, and, and uh, uh, you become important to God. The life and the blood of the Son of God was given to purchase your soul and my soul. And when we trust Christ as our Savior, and we become saved, we become converted, it makes our soul great. Now, the disciples needed to grasp this truth. The churches of Jesus Christ are not to show respect of persons because the most in insignificant soul becomes a child of God, a joint heir with Jesus Christ by faith. And therefore, New Testament churches are to welcome each soul as we would the Lord Himself. Now, churches should indeed honor. God's faithful servants and the church leaders, but there are no big shots in the Lord's church. Now you go to some churches and you find some people who think they're the big shots. You got the big shots and the little shots. And then you have the no shots. (laughs) They must be the ones without any powder. But there are no big shots in the Lord's New Testament Bible-believing church. No people who are above the commands of God. There are none that have earned their way to the kingdom because of who they are or what they've accomplished. No matter how many degrees they have behind their name. No matter how much they have in their bank account. All will be received and loved as the Lord has received and loved us. Savior values an individual soul. It does not matter what their status is in society. Secondly, we notice here that the Savior's fearful warning to offenders of His children. You see in verse 6 here, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones, which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, you probably notice I'm not making a strong emphasis this morning upon a ministry to children. Although I do believe in a ministries to children, I do really enjoy young people and children. I don't think that's really the emphasis, though, of this passage. I know it's often preached. This passage is used. And there's nothing wrong with having a ministry to young children. I, I was a child when I got saved. I'm thankful for vacation Bible school. I'm thankful for Sunday school where I grew up in learning the Bible stories and learning what it means to love the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think that's really the strong emphasis here, although it is something that could be applied. And so the Lord illustrates this verse here and the point he's making about using a little child as an illustration. And he references it four times in verses 2 through 5. But he makes a very important clarifying change in verse 6. He says, One of these little ones which believe in me. And though the Lord certainly would warn us that we should be fearful of doing any harm to children, the warning here applies to the children of God. Souls that are saved and born again, no matter how insignificant they may seem to others. The Lord Jesus here warns against offending and putting a spiritual stumbling block in the way of Christians, most probably those who are newly saved, we need to be careful that those who are newly saved, that we're not putting a stumbling block in their way. To offend someone would be to entirely or influence them to sin by what we say or to do. Because God's people were bought with such a great price and were so precious to Him, we dare not do anything to turn one of them out of the path of righteousness, no matter how insignificant they are in the world's eyes. And so to make His disciples understand this, the Lord used as a warning the picture of tying a millstone around the neck. Now the millstone was that great big stone that was used to, to uh, mill the grain and this is a very graphic picture he uses. One of these large stones would be used to grind grain, and if it was tied around the neck and dropped, it would probably break the person's neck and drag that person to the bottom of the sea and cause certain death. Now that's a very vivid illustration that the Lord Jesus uses here with a child on his lap. Such a death would be better than having our actions cause a Christian to stumble. But how many times do we think about that? Offenses are going to happen in a sinful world, but Jesus utters a dire warning to those who are responsible for offending his saints. And this is why we are each responsible to pursue restoration of fellowship, to confront wrongs, and to take the matter to the church when a soul refuses to repent. If we do not do this, God will will deal with us. Then thirdly, we see the Savior's illustration of the need to deal with our sin. The illustration of the need to deal with sin. Verse 7 says, Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man who by the offenses cometh, by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet, to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to... Enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Now the stumbling blocks that we put in front of others which cause them to reject Christ and write doctrine and cause them not to live the life uh, of, Je- of service to Jesus Christ usually come because we tolerate sin in our lives. Stumbling blocks. Things that get in the way. We may insult people with our selfish, inconsiderate, arrogant speech. We may be unkind or dishonest or unclean or lustful or impatient or angry or worldly while new Christians are watching us. Those are stumbling blocks. And many times faithful servants are hurt. Some become disillusioned or they're turned away by our sin. And yes, we fail. We do sin. But if we're excusing that sin, if we're not, uh, uh, if we disregard the impact it has on others, our sin is multiplied in its wickedness in the Lord's eyes. We should avoid destroying the faith and purity of others, other professing Christians. Now, the Lord here uses what we call a hyperbolic, hyperbolic. Illustration, a hyperbole. And he uses this hyperbole, which is an exaggeration or a figure of speech not intended really to be taken literally, but uh, he uses that to really show us the seriousness of sin. We all have our hands, and we, our feet, and our eyes, and we know that the hands and the feet and the eyes are those things that usually cause us to sin the hands to do things, the feet to take his place, and the eyes to see things that we should not be seeing. But to cut them off or gouge them out really doesn't even produce sanctification. Just because a person would take this literally and say, well, my hand has caused me to sin, I'll cut it off, does not sanctify that person. What we really need is repentance. We need a change of heart. We need to deal severely with our guilt and seek to put away the temptation by removing the provisions for and the enticements to the sin. A careless attitude towards sin will cause damnation of ours and others' souls. And if we have a flippant attitude towards sin, one that excuses its destructive power and keeps someone from reproving a Christian brother who's done wrong. The same irreference causes people to say that it's none of the church's business what goes on in the private life or or in my family's life. That indifference treats hell like it's not too bad and maybe does not even exist. Whereas Jesus said that we ought rather to maim ourselves than chance going to hell person who gets angry and opposes a church that seeks to carry out proper discipline really doesn't love souls, does not fear sin, does not believe in the awesome and eternal torment of hell. Jesus lets us know that sin and hell are things to be avoided at all costs. The danger that presents here demands that we follow his instructions that are given in verse 15 through 20. Then as we continue on here, the Savior's warning against despising individual souls in verse 10 and 11. He says, Take heed, take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven, for the Son of Man is come to save that which is lost. Now, again, he commands here something, and he says, take heed. Be on the lookout. Diligently guard your soul to make sure that you do not despise one of these little ones. Again, which little ones? Now, we're not to think down upon or think little of or disdain anyone. It's not just children he's talking about. It's anyone who seemingly is insignificant as far as the world is concerned we're not to think down of them and make them uh, uh, belittle them they may not be pretty they may not have money they may have not much influence in this world or they may not have an impressive education but they have the attention of the angels The ministering spirits who report to God, they have their attention. Angels, in contrast to demons, that is, seek to assist us in doing right, helping us to turn from evil and unbelief. What a loathsome, loathsome thing it is for angels to be hindered in their work by a professing child of God. As it were not great enough danger for us to stand in the way of angels, Our offenses toward Christians often hinder and oppose the work of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We find in other passages it's clear that these same words refer to the salvation of souls from hell. But here in this context it seems to refer to the complete work of salvation, including not only salvation, but sanctification in the lives of new converts. And churches and individual Christians are commanded here to help the Lord Jesus in a great work as part of the great commission He's given to us. But if we stand in the way of that work, we cause Christians to stumble, we allow them to go unreproved down a sinful path, or by opposing church discipline, we stand against Jesus Christ Himself. And the Savior demands that we value each Christian as He does. We assist him in his work of saving and sanctifying from the corruption of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And then as we move on through the first part of this chapter, the Savior's illustration of his concern for individual souls. Verse 12 says, How think ye, if a man have a hundred sheep, and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine, and goeth into the mountains, and seeketh that which is gone astray? And if so be that you find them, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so it is not the will of the Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The Lord Jesus is the great shepherd, the head of every New Testament Bible-believing church, and he was speaking to people who were familiar with shepherds and their sheep. His listeners would understand the diligent shepherd who would leave 99 sheep in his flock and he'd go out and rescue and regain only one sheep who was lost because each one was important. And if a shepherd brought that lost sheep back unharmed, he would take great joy in that sheep, more than the 99 who stayed safely in the fold. And Jesus says the shepherd's joy was like the joy that God has when one of his sheep has wandered out of the fold of a church. And then when he's restored to that church and spiritual health, he does not want one soul to perish. Certainly, the same care for individual souls ought to be manifested by members of a Bible-believing church. We receive souls into church membership on the basis of their profession of faith and their baptism. It's our responsibility. It's our duty to instruct them so they will obey all things whatsoever He has commanded us. We cannot see what's in their souls to know whether they are genuinely born again. But over the course of their lives, they may wander spiritually and even get out of the church. And the responses and the actions of our churches will either help restore them or offend them or even re- reveal whether or not they were truly of the Lord. Jesus emphasized this truth here to as he prepared his disciples for the instruction of verses 15 to 20. The church, the local church is to be a place for nurturing souls, which not only involves teaching and prayer but also confrontation of sin and working to remove stumbling blocks. If the soul gets away from the Lord and from the church, we ought to attempt to restore that soul as a work of love, without either coddling sin or overlooking their wrong. But uh, God's love seeks genuine restoration to the fellowship of His body, the church. And then notice number six, the Savior's illustration for His demand of forgiveness. A lengthy part here in verses 21 through uh, 35, but notice it as we read it here. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him ten thousand talents. But forasmuch as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, his wife and his children, all that he had and payment be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshiped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told the Lord their Lord all that was done. And then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O oh, thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all the debt because thou desirest me shouldst not thou also have compassion on thy fellow servant even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors until he should pay all that was due unto him, and so likewise shall my heavenly father do also unto him or unto you, if ye will from your hearts forgive not only not everyone his brother their trespasses. The process that Jesus commanded his disciples to follow in verses 15 through 17 can be difficult. It can be drawn out as we'll see there as we look at that. But that portion of scripture was designed by him to see sinning church members restored. And Peter seemed to think, well, how many times do I have to go through this process If someone keeps sinning against me, seven times seems pretty pretty gracious. Jesus told the parable then in these verses we just read to correct Peter's thinking and to emphasize the importance of forgiveness and restoration of brethren who repent of sinning. And though Jesus said 490 times, that is seven times 70 he also taught that we should never withhold forgiveness without first following the procedure that he gives in verses 15 through 17. Now the reason for going to that effort comes from the truth that our gracious God forgives us every time we repent. And like the first servant in the parable, we, are, we have sinned so greatly and so often against the Lord that we should We could never repay him. And yet at the repentance of the first servant, the king simply forgave the whole amount. The whole amount. And if we have received and continue to receive such merciful forgiveness from God, how could we refuse to forgive the tiny infractions committed against us when our debtors repent? But Jesus doesn't stop with simply saying, well, we should forgive people when they repent. As the king sentenced the unforgiving servant to torture, Jesus said God would do the same unto us if we did not forgive from our hearts. God expects us to, uh, uh, to forgive and to work for restoration those who sin against us. I think it seems as if Jesus is asserting one of two possibilities here. Unforgiving souls are lost and will be tormented in hell, or... Christians who fail to forgive will suffer under God's earthly chastisement. Either one demands that we obey the instructions in verses 15 through 20. Now we've come through this entire chapter for the exception of verses 15 through 20, although we've read the entire chapter. We've looked at the verses surrounding the Lord's instruction for discipline in the New Testament church, and the Lord The Lord' uh, willingness, we uh, uh, the Lord willing, we will look at those instructions the next Lord's Day. But let me ask you this morning: In what we've looked at, how is the Holy Spirit dealing in your heart? Are you thinking possibly this morning? Is there someone thinking, "Well, I've sinned too greatly for the Lord to save"? You think your life is too insignificant to God for any concern about you. Remember, God values every individual soul here this morning. Young or old. Grandfather, grandmother, father, mother, child. God values your soul. And your worth comes from being redeemed It does not come from who you are or what you've done. Being converted makes your soul great. And also think of the warning here of offending one of his little children. Sin must be dealt with, but we dare not despise any individual soul. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world. What's included in that world? Every one of you and me. Every one of us is included. It does not matter how great a person is or how insignificant, how old the person is or how young. God loves each one of us. Listen, God is concerned about your soul this morning. Are you? There's no sin too great for God not to forgive you if you humbly come to Him and believe in Him and receive His free gift of salvation. And Christian, those of you and probably most of us here this morning know that we've been redeemed and that we've been forgiven and we're rejoicing in that. But do we have a spirit of concern and forgiveness to others? And I trust, as we've just even looked at the surrounding verses to the crucial uh, passage here, that God would help us to take heed to His instruction to us this morning. God loves each one of us. God wants us to live for Him. And these are instructions to a local New Testament Bible-believing church. God's institution for accomplishing His work in this world today. This is it. And we must realize that there cannot be partiality or respect of persons, but there must be a concern for every individual soul. And if there's someone who gets off track, someone of our membership, someone of our uh, church who strays away from the Lord, we have a responsibility to lovingly and Firmly follow the Lord's instructions. Well, Lord willing, we'll look at those instructions next Sunday. Let's pray. Father in heaven, speak to our hearts this morning as we.